0: If you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 13 as we continue looking at the Gospel of John this morning. We'll be in John 13, beginning in verse 18. John is recording for us the words of Jesus, and he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, I do not speak of all of you, I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He leaning back on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. No one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him, for some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel he went out immediately, and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Now, in this passage this morning, we see both the darkness of sin, we also see that we are commanded to love like Jesus. And so those will be the the two main points under which we consider these verses this morning. The darkness of sin and love like Jesus. In regard to the darkness of sin, we see first of all here the the treachery of Judas. For those of us who are familiar with the gospel accounts, it's no surprise to hear of this betrayal of Jesus by one of the twelve, one of their number. But at this time, the twelve disciples had no idea. They knew that one of their number was a devil, as Jesus had said back in John 6, verse 70, but they didn't probably understand what that actually meant. They had heard that the Son of Man would be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes as Jesus had warned them, Mark 9.31, Mark 10.33, but from all we can tell, they did not yet realize that it was one of the twelve who would do the betraying. They didn't realize that the one who was a devil would prove to be a traitor, that he would prove to be the son of perdition as Jesus refers to him in John 17, 12. And thus, in Jesus' discussion with the disciples about them uh, being clean and needing only to have their feet washed, as we saw last week, and then being blessed if they would imitate his practice, Jesus now clarifies in verse 18 that he was speaking of some of them and not all of them. He knew the ones that he had chosen. He knew... The ones that he had chosen and had appointed to go and bear fruit, the fruit that would last, he had certainly chosen the twelve, even though one of them was a devil, but he had not chosen them all in the same way, nor for the same purpose. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.20 that in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. This is the case within the visible church, and... We know that not all who profess Christ are actually in Christ. Not all who profess Christ have actually repented and believed and been saved. And even among the original followers of Jesus, even among the twelve, there was one who would betray him. The Son of Man was to go as it was written of him, as Jesus said in Mark fourteen twenty-one, Or as he puts it here, that the scripture may be fulfilled. And then he quotes from Psalm 41, 9. He who eats my bread... "...has lifted up his heel against me." That's Psalm 41, which is a psalm of David. And King David, as you know, is the the great human ancestor of our Lord Jesus, such that Jesus could legitimately be called the Son of David. And as the great king and ancestor of Christ, having that covenant from God that his throne would endure, that his kingdom would endure forever, David was a forerunner and was a type of Christ... Now, certainly that's not to say that everything that happened to David or everything that David did would somehow show up in the life of Jesus. And we can thank God that that is not the case. There's no murder or adultery or any lawless and sinful action in the life of Christ. But nevertheless, there were many aspects of David's life which foreshadowed the life of Jesus. There was betrayal and there was suffering. And even though the entirety of Psalm 41 is not messianic. There are portions in there that are applicable to to David and David alone, and not to Christ. But nevertheless, verse 9 does apply to Christ. In Psalm 41, 9, David may have been speaking of his own betrayal by a close companion. You can certainly think of close companions in the life of David by whom he was betrayed. His own son Absalom, who rose up against him. You can think of Ahithophel who joined Absalom. Ahithophel had been a counselor. Uh, To David, from whom he sought wisdom, but switched sides and joined in Absalom's rebellion. And in that case, these betrayals then point forward to an even more profound act of betrayal, the betrayal of someone within the Messiah's inner circle who would rise up and betray him. Now, to us, as we as we read this about uh, him who's sharing the bread, lifting up his heel against us, we may not grasp the, the depth of the betrayal that's involved here. In the ancient Near East, this would have been viewed as especially terrible, that someone who had eaten with you and had shared your bread would do something like this. And this is because sharing a meal was a sign of peace and of friendship. It's Not necessarily so in our culture, at least not to the same extent as it was there in that culture. To share someone's bread and then rise up against them and betray them was dirty pool. But such was the treachery of Judas. Jesus wanted the disciples to know up front what was going on, so that in the end they would believe in him that they would believe that he is, as we find in verse 19. And all that was about to happen within just a few hours of this meal that Jesus was sharing, the disciples were going to be very confused, very uncertain about a lot of things. And so in that context, Jesus wants them to know up front what was going to happen so that when everything went down, they would be able to circle back and remember that, oh yeah, Jesus told us about this. Jesus said this was going to happen. And this would then serve to, to strengthen their faith when all of their swirling doubts began to rage within them. They could look back and see what Jesus said. that Oh yeah, this actually did go down the way that Jesus said it would. And then they could learn from that as just one more piece of the puzzle to serve them so that they could trust in Christ that he truly was who he said he was going to be. And then speaking to those whom he had chosen there in verse 20, Jesus points them to the work that would be theirs in spreading the gospel. He says that those who receive Christ's messengers receive him. Those who receive Christ receive the Father. He points them ahead to the work that they would be doing. But He doesn't dwell there long. He circles back to the betrayal that was to come. And all of the intensity that he was feeling, he returns again to the subject of betrayal. He's deeply troubled in his spirit, which is his human soul, just the way that you and I would be troubled if we were to experience such a thing and if we were to know that such a betrayal was coming upon us. And now he is even more clear about his betrayal. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And again, the disciples are surprised at this. They don't have any idea which one he's talking about. And Peter wants to know, and instead of asking uh, directly, he gets the attention of this disciple, this one whom Jesus loved, and this is the first reference uh, that we have to this disciple speaking in this particular way in the gospel. He, this is how John refers to himself as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he uses this a, this designation for himself a few few more times between now and the the end of the Gospel of John, and finally in, in chapter twenty one verses twenty and twenty four we realize that this disciple whom Jesus loved was was actually the one who wrote down this gospel for us and this is, this is john 's way of speaking about himself and so peter Peter motions to John and asks him to find out what jesus meant and John then does the bidding of peter he Leans back, they're all reclining around the table, and so he is evidently seated next to Jesus and is able to, to lean back into Jesus' bosom and ask him, Lord, who is it? And then Jesus is able to show him clearly by giving the morsel of bread to Judas. And we're told that after Judas had eaten the bread, that Satan then entered into him. It seems that Satan took bodily possession of Judas. And even when Jesus told Judas to do what he was going to do, what you're about to do, do quickly, it seems that the rest of the disciples still don't have a clue what is going on in all of this. We don't know for sure, but it certainly seems possible that John's question to Jesus when he said, Lord, who is it? And perhaps even Jesus's response when he said, the one to whom I I give the morsel, it may have been that this was spoken in very whispered or hushed tones. There may have been lots of conversation going on around the table, perhaps boisterous and noisy conversation. We don't know. And so this exchange between Jesus and John may have been relatively secret. We can't we can't be sure. But given that by and large the disciples seem to have had no clue what Jesus was saying to Judas when he said, what you do, do quickly. They didn't understand why Judas got up and left, that it may be that they hadn't even heard what Jesus and John were saying to one another. And then notice, notice verse 30. I think this kind of brings things to a culmination. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Now, no doubt it was night as far as the time of day was concerned, but I think that John may be telling us something more here than simply the time of day. I think he may be telling us something about Judas and the darkness into which Judas had now finally descended. Now let's notice something here about the descent of Judas. What we read here in the case of Judas was not something that happened overnight. He was a man who knew Jesus. He was a man who had proclaimed the message of the kingdom when Jesus sent out the twelve to preach Judas was one of their number he preached and performed miracles healing, casting out demons and so on but he had never been right he had never been saved he was a devil we saw back in chapter 12 with the, uh, the account of Jesus being anointed that Judas was a thief that Judas, Judas kept the money box which probably indicated that he was trusted right you wouldn't You wouldn't have the money box reside with the person whom you knew was a thief, right? But he probably had an exterior appearance of trust. The other disciples uh, certainly trusted him. Jesus obviously knew that he was a devil, but he kept the money box. He would pilfer what was put into it. And John told us in that context of the, the anointing of Jesus that Judas was intending to betray Jesus. That's John 12, 4. And Matthew relates to us, Matthew 26, verse 14 and following, how after that occasion, after the anointing, Judas went to the chief priests and he said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And Matthew tells how they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him and that from that time on, Judas began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Now Judas had obviously been successful at keeping this whole thing a secret. Jesus knew because Jesus was omniscient. But nevertheless, the, the rest of the twelve didn't know. Judas didn't tell. And therefore, none of the other disciples had any idea what was going on and what he was going out to do. Now, the Gospels don't give us much insight into what was going on in Judas's heart other than those things that we've already seen. That he had been a thief. At some point, he decided to betray Jesus he worked it out with the chief priest, and then he did it, and he went out, and it was night. Now, we can't, we can't track everything that was going on inside of Judas's heart and mind, but it seems that he had been led step by step down a path that culminated in this ultimate betrayal of Jesus. Evidently, he loved money. He stole money from the box, and eventually he was willing to sell Jesus out for money. Despite being close to Jesus in regard to physical proximity, despite hearing the teaching of Jesus, despite even preaching the message of Jesus, he remained unbelieving and unrepentant. And not only that, he kept on descending. He continued to stoop lower. He became hardened. Satan entered into him. He went out, and it was night. Martin Lloyd-Jones once commented on this by saying, Sorrow is the lot of all who turn their backs on Christ. Judas later turned his back upon him. He went out and it was night and he committed suicide. To leave Christ is always a spiritual suicide. You are turning away from your Savior, away from life which is life indeed, away from the Son of God who came to die for you and to save you. You are turning from the only one who can give you happiness, peace and joy. There is no resting place In life in this world, apart from Christ. And if you leave Him, you are always going to have sorrow. Now, those words are true. And what this means is that we must pay close attention to the gospel, that we must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that we must believe upon Him as the Lamb of God who came into the world to die for sinners. We must keep close to Him. And part of what that means is that we need to be diligent about picking the weeds of sin out of our hearts when we find them there. Because sin follows a pathway and it ends in sorrow and death if it is followed to its logical conclusion, as it was here in the case of Judas. James tells us about that pathway in James 1, 14 and 15, where he says that each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is accomplished, brings forth death. And this is what happened to Judas. He was carried away by his own lust, which proceeded further into sin, and ultimately that sin brought forth his death. And again, this is why we have to go after the weeds in our hearts when they first sprout. We have to go after the wicked lusts When they first appear, because if left unchecked, these things grow, they get out of control, and if nothing intervenes, then the end is death, the night of eternal darkness. And so what can we do? Well, Proverbs 4.23 is helpful when it says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And sometimes what this means is we have to do some soul searching. We have to ask ourselves some questions. Why am I so angry? Why am I so bitter? Why am I so proud? Why am I so whatever? You, you fill in the blank. Whatever sin is confronting you, why am I this way? And then we need to, to look at what's going on inside of our hearts. What is it that we're trying to accomplish by these sinful attitudes that we have adopted? What is it that lies behind them or underneath them that needs to be rooted out? How am I violating the commands of God in these ways? And then we need to repent and seek the grace of God. We seek forgiveness for the evil that we have done, the evil that we have thought, the evil that we have intended or purposed in our hearts. And we seek the grace of God to help us in that repentance because truth be told, we are all so weak and so inclined to sin that apart from the grace of God, we will be unable to repent Whenever we are truly able to forsake sin and turn away from it, that's because of the grace of God. And so we need to seek that grace, the grace of forgiveness, and also the grace of repentance, that we would truly turn from these things, root them out of our hearts, and seek to move forward walking with Christ. And the good news is that we need not fear of finding that grace when we seek it. Though our hearts and our actions are ever so dark, Nevertheless, there is fullness of grace to be found in our Lord Jesus Christ. And even here at the end of this chapter, here at the end of chapter 13, we see clear evidence of Jesus' patience and love toward his people, even toward his weak and sinful people. Jesus doesn't kick out his people to the curb just because of their weakness and their sinfulness. Just look at that interaction there with Simon Peter in verses 36 through 40. Peter wanted to follow Jesus through thick and thin, or at least that's what he thought, at least that's what he verbally professed. He said, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Very bold. Those are good words, right? His heart is in the right place. That's that's the right attitude. That's the right mentality. But... He was weaker than he thought, and Jesus knew it. Jesus could see through the big talk to the weakness of heart that lay underneath it. And so he says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Jesus saw through the brave words. He knew what Peter was going to do, but still he loved him. And the very next thing that we read here in the Gospel of John is Jesus saying, the beginning of chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And we know how, from the end of this gospel, how Jesus intentionally sought out Peter and asked him those three times, do you love me? There's a big difference between Judas and Peter. And the difference is what they set their heart on. Judas set his heart on sin, he went out into the darkness and it was night And death followed not too far behind him. Peter set his heart on Jesus. Right, He wanted to follow Jesus. His spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak. And Jesus knew that, and Jesus bore with him. And Jesus will do the same for all those who truly set their hearts on him. What do you set your heart on? Do you set your heart on on money, the love of money, sinful things like Judas did? Or do you set your heart on Jesus? Even though we're weak and sinful, if we set our hearts on Jesus, Jesus will be merciful and gracious and bear with us. So we find in Hebrews 7.25 that Christ is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. And don't we know that we all need this endless intercession of Christ? We don't need it just for a moment. We need it for our entire lives. And praise God, Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. We read in James four seven and following, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So what do you set your heart on? Set your heart on sin, like Judas? Or do you set your heart on Jesus, like Peter, even though you're weak? The good news is that there is hope, that there is a way to escape the darkness that came upon Judas. Judas heard the gospel, but he didn't listen to it. You too have heard the gospel. You must listen to it. And that brings us then to our second point, which is which is love like Jesus. As Judas leaves the room, and in light of the coming events of later that night and the day that would follow, Jesus says, there in verse 31, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And in those words, there in verses 31 and 32, we, we've seen what we've seen before that the Son of God is, is going to be glorified in the subsequent events of his, his crucifixion and his resurrection. And these are obviously the means by which he brings redemption to his people. These are the means by which he will be exalted by the Father. And isn't this what Paul gets at in Philippians 2, 8, and 9 when he speaks of how Christ humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross? For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Christ is glorified because of his obedience in going to the cross. Indeed... These are the means by which he himself exalts the Father by bringing to accomplishment the plan of redemption. We also see here the, the close connection between the Father and the Son. We see that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father and how they are glorified in one another. And if you look at what Jesus says there and flesh that out a little bit, we see that when the Son is glorified, God the Father is glorified in the Son. And if then if God the Father is glorified in the Son then God the Father will also glorify the Son in Himself. The Father will glorify the Son in the Father. Both the Father and the Son are glorified together. They're glorified in one another. Is it any wonder then that Jesus says that He and the Father are one? Is it any wonder that we read the multitudes of heaven in Revelation chapter 5 saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and wealth and honor and glory, giving praise to Christ because of what he has done. And then in the very next verse, the praise is given to both the Father and the Son, as every created thing in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea says, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The Father and the Son are glorified. They are glorified in one another. They are glorified together. And the cross is the way by which the Son of God is glorified. It is the way in which God the Father is glorified in the Son. And this teaches us something quite wonderful, doesn't it? Something quite wonderful about God the Father and God the Son. And this wonderful truth is that our great God is glorified in the redemption of sinners. God is glorified in providing a way of salvation for poor sinners like you and I. And God is glorified in the application of this salvation to sinners like us. Truly the God who is glorified in this way, in the way of mercy, the way of grace, and the way of salvation, is the God who is worthy of all of our love and all of our praise. He's the God who is worthy of all of our service and all of our obedience. This is the God who is worthy of all of our reverence and all of our fear. We all deserve to be handed over to our sin and to go out into ever-increasing darkness. But God is rich in mercy and great in the love with which He loves us. He's provided salvation to us in Christ and He is glorified in that salvation. And so let us also then glorify God because of that salvation that He gives to us. And in order to glorify Christ, we must both trust him and obey him. And one of the foremost of his commands is found here in verse 34, where he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now obviously, the greatest commandment of all is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, all of our strength, and all of our mind. And Jesus said the second is like it, that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And this commandment here in verse 34 is, I think we could say, a subset of the second great commandment. Our neighbor is the person who lives in close proximity to us, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, we're to love them as ourselves. But this commandment here is is not given... To us in regard to all neighbors as such, it is given more particularly in regard to our fellow believers in distinction from the world. And the newness of the command, I think, is not that believers have never been commanded to love before, that was in the Old Testament law, love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. But rather, the newness of the command seems to be that the command is connected with a a new standard or a, a new standard that was tangible in the disciples' experience. We love one another not simply as we love ourselves, rather we love as Christ has loved us. Isn't that the command? That you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. We're to love as Christ has loved us. We're to love as he has given himself up for us. And this love then serves to mark out those who are his, marks us out in distinction from the world and sets an example for the world. And so he says in verse 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And this one another is, is in reference to the disciples of Jesus, to our, our fellow disciples, our fellow Christians. We show the outside world, the all men, that we belong to Jesus and are his disciples by the way that we show love to our fellow believers. And how is it that we're supposed to do this? Jesus calls us to love our fellow believers as he has loved us. How has he loved us? By laying aside his heavenly glory, by becoming a man and ultimately going to the cross. He loved us by suffering the wrath of God on our behalf and by giving up his life on our behalf. And though none of us can provide a sacrifice of atonement for another person, far be it from us to even think such a thing, nevertheless, we love our fellow believers by laying down our lives for them, by, figuratively speaking, washing one another's feet, as we considered last week. And laying down our lives, practically speaking, looks a lot like what we read from Philippians 2 this morning in our unison reading, where Paul says, Make my joy complete by... Being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is how we love one another as Christ has loved us. It means that we look out. For the interests of others, we seek what is good for them, that they might be edified, that they might be built up, that they might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. The question we should be asking is, what tends toward edification? How can the body of Christ be built up? That has to be the question. How can we love? It can't be inwardly directed. How can I implement my own agenda? How can I... Get myself to a position where I receive the praise and acclamation of others. That's selfishness, right? That's empty conceit. Those are the things that Paul says we're not supposed to conduct ourselves in those ways. And so we want to avoid this selfishness, this vain conceit, and we do so by being humble, by regarding one another as more important than ourselves, by looking out for the interests of others. Or as Paul says in Romans 12.3, we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. That's our default, right, is to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. But Paul says we need to think so as to have sound judgment. And so what that means is we need to be quick to recognize that we don't have it all together. We need to be quick to recognize the wisdom and discernment that God has given to our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. We need to be quick to seek to walk together in an understanding way. We need to be quick to say, as Paul would say to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians nine twelve. we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. And Paul tells us what this looks like in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says that love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is what love is. This is how we are to act. But we also need to be clear about what love is not, right? It's a matter of the modern-day secular creed that love is love, right? And all that that does really, though, is only push back the question one step further. If love is love, then we are compelled to ask, what is the love that is love, right? We We need some definitions to this. The love that Jesus requires of his people is not a love that is accepting of Every practice, it's not a love that is accepting of every attitude. Of course not. Jesus does not accept every practice and every attitude. On the contrary, he calls out as sinful those attitudes that are sinful. And he tells us that if we persist in our sins, we're headed for hell. Jesus accepts sinners, but he doesn't accept sin. Jesus loves sinners, but Jesus detests our sins. It's our sins that put him on the cross. And so, the love of, of Jesus is not a love that affirms us in our sins. And therefore, when we love one another the way that Jesus loved us, we're not talking about loving in such a way that we affirm sin. Rather, what we find in 2 John, verses 5 and 6, is very helpful in defining for us what love is. And John says there, Not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning. That we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. And so the love that we have for one another as Christians has the law of God as its standards, that we walk according to His commandments, that we walk with one another in accordance with His commandments. And this requires kindness, and gentleness and generosity. It also requires us to speak the truth to one another in love. It requires that we hold one another accountable just as it is not actually loving for a parent to allow a child to do whatever they want without rebuke or correction, so it's also not loving if we treat one another in the body of Christ in that way. Rather, James says in James 5.20 that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And We can certainly apply that to our interactions with one another in the body of Christ. That's uh, one of the means of grace God has, has given us as believers, is that we have other Christians to help keep us on the straight and narrow, to help keep us on the path toward heaven. So sometimes that means we have to be firm with the people that we love. And just because we love each other doesn't mean that we will always agree. Nor does it mean that we will always do what someone else wants us to do. But what we must never do, though, under any circumstance, is give way to to anger, at least unrighteous anger. There's certainly righteous indignation in some cases, for sure. We must never give way to envy or bickering or slander or gossip or the like. Even when we have to correct or rebuke or to disagree, we can do so in a Christ-like way and in a loving way. Paul was speaking particularly to pastors in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, but the words are certainly more broadly applicable than to pastors when he said that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Just because we love one another, that doesn't mean that we give someone a pass when they're doing wrong. But loving each other will show itself in how we speak and act even when we have differences. And Jesus says that this is what will mark his people off as from the world. He says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now I think often, as I've thought about this and maybe haven't been thinking deeply enough about this verse, I've tended to think of this almost in terms of an evangelistic strategy, right? If we love one another... Then the world will, will see us loving one another, and they'll be like, oh wow, these are the disciples of Jesus. We want, we want to be in there. That's that's what we want. But it doesn't actually say that, does it? Right? It doesn't, doesn't actually say that if you love one another, then everybody else is going to flock to the church. It doesn't, Jesus doesn't quite say it that way. Now we want that to be true, and may God may God grant that it would be true. But that's not promised to us explicitly here. It doesn't mean that people will want to join us if we love one another. They might actually see our love, love that is carried out in accordance with the commandments and word of God, and be repulsed by it. And this has happened in the, uh, the late 2nd or early 3rd century. Tertullian, who was a Christian writer in North Africa, said that, that non-believers would comment upon the Christians and they would say, see how they love one another. They could recognize that within the church there was, there was love for one another, but Tertullian said that they themselves were animated by mutual hatred, and that they were actually angry that Christians referred to each other as as brethren. They they saw the love that existed in the church, at least according to Tertullian, they could see it, they could recognize it. But it wasn't it wasn't automatic that oh yeah let's let's go there. That's what we want. They uh, they hated Christians. They could see their love, but they hated it. So just because we Love each other as we ought. It's no promise that the world will want to follow Christ. Certainly, we hope by God's grace that many will see the love that we as Christians have for one another and be attracted and drawn to that, but there's no guarantee here. What Jesus is saying, though, is that this love is a special mark of his people and that the world will know it. They will recognize his people as belonging to him. And so, friends, let's, let's do it. Let's love one another Let's remember how Christ has loved us by coming to earth and going to the cross. How he has loved us by laying down his life for us, giving us salvation. And then let us likewise be willing to, to act in humility. As Paul says in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. May God grant that that would be our mindset. That we would love, that we would lay down our lives for the good of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, it is very easy to talk about love, and sometimes it is very hard actually to love. We know, Lord, that to do this, we need your grace, we need your help. We recognize that we can do nothing if we do not abide in Christ as a branch abides in the vine. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be merciful to us, that you would help us, and, uh, Lord, that you would empower us and strengthen us to to love one another. We pray that it would be a testimony to the world, that they would see, that they would know that we belong to you. And, Lord, we ask that even many would be drawn to the love that they see within the body of Christ. Father, we praise you for this Lord's Day. We ask your blessing upon us. We ask your help, your grace, and your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.